0: So, this podcast is recorded in a house with animals, one of whom has already interrupted our recording once and caused us to have to start over.
1: Tiny orange cats walking on keyboards. It's a problem.
0: It it is a problem. Uh, The other problem for some people is that we swear a lot. We do. And so, we have to mark this as being explicit. While it's not specifically of an adult nature, there will be swearing I will also mention at this point that our interview today talks about anxiety and depression, the autism spectrum, housing security, food and eating disorders, and trauma. So We you, got a
1: full bingo card today. It's right
0: up there. Um so. so welcome to Productivity Alchemy episode 129. I had promised a letters episode this week, but we've had to postpone it.
1: It's my fault. I apologize. I... Okay, this is complicated, Internet. Um, I dewormed myself yesterday. (laughs) Or or rather, my friend Shepard came over with the ivermectin because ever since, you know, Tibet, I've... uh, For reasons we won't get into the gory details, I've had a certain suspicion that perhaps I was carrying more than my fair share of a parasite load. And... (laughs) So, and the thing is, a human dose for ivermectin, it's the same stuff. It's it's literally the exact same thing. Human ivermectin, sheep ivermectin, it's all just ivermectin, broad spectrum. So, uh, and I tried talking to my doctor who was like, I don't even know. I guess I could research and then dropped off the face of the earth. So I was like, fuck it. What's the worst that happens? And took uh, a human dose of ivermectin, and uh, which was basically a shot glass of the world's worst shot. And... Mm. Uh, it was fine, but then I got a migraine, which I don't usually get, and it was annoying. I don't know if something about that set it off. Uh, part of my panicked anxiety brain is going, you had a worm and the worm's gentle massage to keep your, your, you know, uh, your, uh, immune system from going haywire and ejecting the worm means that now you will get migraines again because it's been holding them off. And I'm like, no, worm bob, come back. I mean,
0: it's it's been a really long time since you had a migraine. The last time yes. I remember you having a migraine was before... We even started talking about going to Africa.
1: Yeah, it's it's been years and years and years. Ye- yeah, so yeah. it was surprising. Um and and it, it was not terribly painful. I am one of the lucky souls who gets migraine with aura where it doesn't really hurt, but I go interestingly blind. And yeah, I am uh my peripheral vision is all back, more or less. It's a little woogly. And uh I am no longer seeing a vague white haze everywhere, but Lights are still weird, and who authorized lights to be like that? So, after this intro, I am probably going to go back up and lay in bed and grumble. And the problem is, all of my reading material involves looking at a lighted screen, which I'm sure is not helping at all. But uh, what else am I going to do? So, uh-huh. I am annoyed because, and this is segueing <laughs> into my crappy day today because I did not get <laughs> anything done because I slept all day because I had a migraine. And it's so annoying. Like that's the thing. I I just resent being sick. It seem no hound. You don't need to be this, up by This the happens
0: microphone. every time you get sick.
1: It does. You I get angry
0: at being sick.
1: I I do. I I well, it's not, hound. Hound decides she wants to be on the microphone now. Yes, Hound is so beautiful. I I am not good at being sick. I am not, you know, the, the uh, pleasant, martyred patient. I am not, you know, sufficiently grateful that other people want to take care of me. I'm just pissed off that I'm sick. And... I, I resent it. It's like getting a flat tire. It's, uh, I, it doesn't feel like, you know, an inevitability that I have to take care of myself and these things will happen. It feels like a random act that occurred and made things really inconvenient for me and it pisses me off. I realize this is perhaps not the healthiest way to deal with this. I'm not saying you should feel this way. I'm just saying I feel this way and some of you may recognize that feeling. Um, lots of people with chronic illness talk about the problem when they are the, when they are not the, um, the photogenic or the pleasant kind of disabled, where they're basically inspiration porn. That's, you know, writ oh. large. I understand a, a tiny fraction of that, and I can only imagine. I or I probably can't even imagine how much it must suck on a day-to-day basis because I turn into a bear after one day of a migraine not being able to get work done. Because, you know, how dare the universe be this poorly run?
0: Okay. So
1: I didn't make word count today.
0: <laughs> no, you didn't. And I was at MAGFest all last week. Yes. So pretty much all I got done was MAGFest. Yeah. and uh, And really that sums up our week this week.
1: So cool, I'm going to go out of here and you can go have an interview.
0: Yes, but I'm going to remind you once again, it's okay to take a sick day. I
1: know. And the thing is, I believe this 100% for other people. Other people are totally allowed to take sick days. You, Internet, you are allowed to take a sick day.
0: Yes. yes. I
1: shouldn't take sick days.
0: Uh, True. <laughs> true. All right. So well, wait, No,
1: no, you said true to me saying I should not take sick days.
0: No, you firmly believe that.
1: Yeah, I I do firmly believe that.
0: But you're allowed to take sick days.
1: (laughs) Anyway. uh, Completely unrelated. You know that thing that usually married couples do at each other where they go... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that the single best scene ever written in a video game dialogue occurred in Assassin's Creed Origins, where the married couple... Who are both assassins, watches someone, you know, deliver a speech and walk off. And the dude, Bayek, turns to his wife and goes, eh, 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 like that. <laughs> and I'm like, the, the love, the, it struck me so hard because that was an observation of human interaction I have never seen in a video game. Not once, not ever. And I, like, fell down and couldn't get up for five minutes. It was so beautiful.
0: All right, then.
1: This has been Random Tangents with Ursula.
0: Right. So our interview this week is with Meredith, and she does a podcast. I love talking to other podcasters about the Silmarillion. Ooh. Yeah. Um Feather Summarizes the Silmarillion is the name of the podcast and uh,
1: what a great service because I'll tell you I could not read the goddamn Silmarillion.
0: I I know. I know it's it's
1: You are it's a thing. fighting the good fight for us, Feather. Yes. Thank
0: you. And so uh we will be talking to her right after this Hi folks, I am here today with Meredith, who has graciously agreed to talk about how she stays productive, and it, it, it occurs to me I have no idea what you do. You might have told me in the original thing, and it's been like uh, like a, a month lot. since we scheduled. Yeah, <laughs> so can you do a better job introducing yourself and tell sure. us all a little bit about what you do?
2: So I am currently a copyright assistant for a small college in northern BC. Um, In general, my career field is librarian, and my vocation is writing, which can interact interestingly sometimes. Um, Eventually, I'd like to settle into being a public librarian with a focus on children and family services, um, particularly trauma-informed and disability-accessible trauma, sorry, disability-accessible family services, but I'm sort of at the beginning of my career, so I'm doing this job to get my in.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
2: otherwise, I write and I do a podcast on the Silmarillion, and I spend a lot of time thinking about writing in history, so that's pretty much me.
0: (laughs) Uh, Podcasters represent. Uh, Mm -hmm. You you can't see it, but I'm raising my fist in solidarity. Uh, Indeed. So with all that going on, how do you keep yourself organized?
2: I have gone through a lot of different stages of organization and starting from a point where I basically didn't to (laughs) a bunch of different iterations. And now I'm sort of right now, I sort of look at it as a kind of a triage thing. And I tend to use the word triage instead of like prioritization.
1: Yeah, Because I realize
2: fair. that triage accepts that sometimes there are things that aren't going to get done. And sometimes you can get everything done, and sometimes you have to try and get everything done. But when you think, when I think about it in terms of prioritization, the things that are at the bottom are still always there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I have realized in triage that sometimes those things just aren't going to happen.
0: It's just not, yeah, no. Uh, it's
2: not going to go.
0: Today is not... Today is not the day for that. Tomorrow yeah. isn't looking good either. Good
2: either, exactly. Yeah. So I mostly use a system of everything revolves fundamentally around my two calendars. I have an Outlook calendar at work now. And I have mm-hmm. my, just the iCal Apple calendar at home. Um, which was the first thing that ever allowed me to keep track of anything. Because it has alarms. Oh yeah. That I can yeah. set something in it. And this makes the difference between whether or not I even remember that something happened or not. So everything that's like at the top of the triage list goes into the iCal or into the Outlook calendar with an alarm on it. And everything else has to be arranged around those things. So then I work on a series of to-do lists and I've sort of, I've gone through iterations of to-do lists actually since more or less when you started the podcast and I started listening. (laughs) Because I we sort of had some before that, but it wasn't working really well. I was living mm-hmm. with my sister at the time, and like I had to do lists, and my mom's always used them in a certain system, but her system wasn't working for me. And it was nice because actually listening to the first few episodes of the podcast helped me get to the point. You're you sort of a permission to try different things and throw them out.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I I, <laughs> I I try to maintain that because. Yeah. Uh, there's no one true solution.
2: Yeah. And it was just very easy. It's very easy for, less easy now, but it always has been very easy for my brain to get the idea that there's a right way to do it. And if I'm not doing it that way, then it's wrong. So it's helpful when some people give me permission to do things in completely different ways or to throw out ways. (laughs) So it was useful in that. And now it's sort of gotten to a point where it's nice because I actually have like, Iterated to-do lists where I can move things around, but it took about two years to get that really going So, yeah, that's basically what I do. I use a lot of to-do lists. I have multiple ones and Anything that's important anything that comes down to if I forget this something's going to be on fire Goes into a calendar with an alert on it.
0: Yeah, yeah now Are you using any of the integrated to-do functionality with your Apple device or Outlook?
2: Not yet. Okay. Um, I kind of want to move to a point where I can. Mm-hmm. But my big thing that I discovered when I started using to-do lists, the very first thing I discovered is I had to be able to make it go away the minute that I had to like, give up on something or miss something on it. Gotcha. So for I'd have a ring binder, not a ring binder, a ring journal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because the minute that I realized, well, I'm not going to get this, that, or the other done, or oh, crap, I've missed the window for that, If it stayed on the to-do list, I stopped being able to keep looking at the to-do list. It just made me too anxious Um, because I also have generalized anxiety disorder and have um, chronic chronic moderate major depressive disorder. So these are things that I have to sort of navigate around. And what I just was that if I had the to-do list that had the thing that wasn't going to be successful and I could still see it. I just hated looking at the to-do list and every time I looked at it, I would feel worse. So I had to be able to tear the page out, crumple it up, make it go away and make a new one. (laughs) And
0: And yeah, it's a little harder to do that with the digital stuff. I mean, right click, delete, but...
2: Yeah, it's not quite the same feeling. And it's interesting because it's sort of been like physiotherapy for... The to-do list anxiety over the course of the time that I've been using it, I don't really <laughs> do that anymore. Most of the time. Right. And have, you know, a, so I'm, I'm moving into the point where I'm like actually getting to the point where could I use an integrated functionality now? Like could I make it so that I have the to-do list that includes the things that are not quite, this is going to be on fire if it doesn't get done integrated with the things that are, and so I'm into experimenting with that, but I'm not quite there yet.
0: Yeah, it, it may be worth looking at um, the David Allen's Getting Things Done uh, bit, where he where you basically have three lists or three folders: uh, to do, um, someday, and delegated.
2: Yes, and that's the something, yeah. That's the one that I want to get to the point where mm-hmm. I'm using because it actually like it feels very intuitive for how I would actually organize things if I didn't have that, you know, brain anxiety freeze the minute that (laughs) something didn't work exactly right. Right. It it has been a progression of, you know, I started out with this system where everything was on this page within a day. You know, I had my things will burn if I don't do it list in the, calendar and that would go at the top of that page but everything else but I had to be able to you know change it the minute and it's gotten to the point where I don't quite have to do that anymore which is nice I still have notebooks where it's a possibility mm-hmm. in case that I have a bad week or whatever but it's been like going to physio it's or doing physio exercises I started out not being able to do you know three lifts of one arm and now I can do 24 in a set or whatever so it's been an interesting Progress of this is actually also a thing that you build over time, oh, yeah. and convince the anxiety part of your brain that actually just because we didn't get this done doesn't mean that the world is going to end.
0: <laughs> and that's that's kind of important. Yeah, yeah, and that rolls us right into the next bit as to what systems and habits are valuable to you. And, and we've already talked about Outlook and Apple, and we've talked about um, triaging and. To do lists and developing that over time. What else is uh, What else is important as part of all this?
2: Radical honesty with myself about Ooh. what my capabilities are and what they aren't, and what's necessary and what isn't. And that one has been a thing that I that's been developing over sort of the past fifteen years since I came to the realization that I'm probably never going to not fit the criteria for chronic for major depression. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those cases where without treatment I'm at the severe end and with treatment I will probably if I you know don't get really lucky I will probably spend most of my life in what most people consider moderately or rather mildly depressed. Right. You know the point where most people start getting treatment is my really good day which kind of sucks but it's also it's way better than where I was. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, well, I can handle this if that's the case, but it got to a point where I had to be really, really just ruthlessly honest about what am I capable of doing? Mm -hmm. And where does that relate to the things that need to be done for certain states of being to exist? And Realizing that it is just a flat out capability thing. It's, it doesn't matter if I can't see the reasons why I am not going to be able to clean the kitchen today. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to clean the kitchen today. It's not going to happen. Right. So we need to just take that one off the list. And it can be very difficult because, you know, at the same time, you have to be in a process of reevaluating how your brain works, what Causes and doesn't cause you to do things, and like the to-do list thing was part of that, and was mm-hmm. realizing that actually just seeing that I have not succeeded at a thing is enough that it will derail my entire effort to get organized, and just accepting that's how that affects me, so I need to do something that will change so that I'm not having that feeling.
0: And And in fairness, you're not the only one who has that whole derailment thing.
2: And doing a, a lot of what allowed me to do that was doing research into, you know, how these things happen and why these things happen and how common they can be. And also, it's like a balance between how common they are as familiar mm-hmm. modes, but also how they're not a majority thing still, which means that the rest of the world is really not designed with this in mind. Um one of my favorite things to make people's heads explode with is that they actually did study and the, um, most common score on the Beck depression inventory is zero, which is not depressed. Like that's actually the most common score. Overwhelming. And that that Um, works
0: on the theory that people are honest with those answers.
2: It does, but you know, it's still, that's the, you know, the majority of people, the majority of people, and if you look at the questions, this winds up making more sense. The majority of people have never thought that they would be better off dead. The majority of people have never thought that they were doomed, that they would never succeed at anything, that they, you know, all of the things that the, the um, test actually asks you. But what that means about a lot of things is that people aren't actually dealing with the same things you are when you're depressed and just managing to do it way better than you. They actually don't feel like that. They don't wake up and think, I wish I were dead today. They've never done that in their lives. I have My my best friend is our token neurotypical in our friends group. Because um, <laughs> I'm also on the autism group. And most of my friends are either on the autism spectrum or they're ADHD or both. <laughs> and then we have my best friend. She's our token heterosexual and our token neurotypical. And we were all hanging out at one point and we were talking about these things and I brought that up because I'd learned it recently. And most of the rest of us were like, that's not possible. And Liz was like, um, so actually, you know, and she named a particular part in her life where she'd been doing fairly, you know, poorly for her you know, her life, there'd been a lot of stressors, a lot of really valid reasons to be upset or depressed. And she's like, I was really worried that I might be, you know, having this difficulty and maybe I should go get treatment. And I took one of those tests and I scored a five. And this, you know, in contrast, the most about the rest of us on this particular test scored about 12 to 15 on a good day. So, (laughs) So at the worst point in her life, she was at a five because she still didn't think that it would never get better. She still didn't think that she should probably just give up and never wake up again. She still didn't think all the rest of those things.
0: Right. Yeah, that's... And
2: and that can be very, like, it can be very hard to grasp when you have struggled with these things that actually the world, a huge part of the world, and not everybody, because that's the thing about how many people there are in the world. You can still have technically the majority operating on this while there's still being a lot of people who are not, but the world is basically assuming that everybody's like Liz.
0: Right. Right.
2: And when you're not, when you're more like somebody who actually has, you know, a disorder, you're actually starting on a higher difficulty setting than she is every single day. And it's, usually better to keep that in mind when you're trying to figure out what you can and can't do it's one of the things that I would have to do is that I would have to go okay yeah but we're at you know whatever level we are and that means that actually you know we have lead weights trapped to our heels so let's reassess what we can do based on on that sort of impediment rather than I should be able to do all of these things and have a perfectly clean home and be working on my next career success because that's what this other person I know can do. Comparison is never helpful.
0: <laughs> I know. And and I I think the the best thing I, I can come up with when thinking about this now is that, uh, did you ever play God of War?
2: No, but I am familiar with it.
0: Yeah. So there's, in all of the games, there's this point where if, if you're having a lot of trouble with a thing, mm-hmm. it pops up and it says, hey, you seem to be having trouble. Do you want to lower the difficulty on this?
2: Oh God, that would be such a wonderful setting to have for life.
0: Right. And it's not something we can do in life. You <laughs> no, know.
2: unfortunately.
0: Some of us are set on on hard. Some of us are, are set on, you know... Um, uh, hellscape. And, and some of us are just naturally have it set to easy and we don't, we don't get that choice.
2: No. And you know, nobody asked us, nobody asked any of us, including the people set on easy, you know, nobody said, Hey, do you want, want this version? They didn't get to pick either. And of course you're setting also randomly changes. Um, Cause the other thing that I, when I was in library school was doing was I had a conversation with a friend of mine on the bus when she was trying to figure out we're talking about the homeless crisis because I was going to school in Fort St. Not Fort Saint, in Vancouver, BC. And there's a significant housing crisis in Vancouver, BC because it's very, very expensive. And also we have a, I would like to move back there eventually. So it's still kind of, we, that's kind of my home city. I want to go I actually grew up where I'm living right now, but I moved down to the coast and found home and I'd like to go back. But so we, things
0: happen. Yeah, I understand yeah. completely.
2: One of the things about Vancouver is it's one of the places in Canada where you don't freeze to death in the winter if you're not in a home. So it not only has all of the um, homeless or homing insecure people that you would expect, housing rather insecure people that you would expect in a city of its size, it also often attracts everybody who's housing insecure from as far away as Ontario because Vancouver winters, you're probably not going to freeze to death, whereas Ontario winters, You probably are. So that makes a significant housing insecure population in the city. And we were talking about how it worked. And I happened to know a bunch about it from a different bunch of things. And I managed to synthesize a whole bunch of information from like different conversations and research that I'd done over the last year and explain to her what was going on. She was from um, somewhere else. Anyway, it was a moment that I realized at the end of it that not everybody could have done that on the bus, sort of off the top of their head. And on the other hand, I didn't manage to actually get my doctor's appointment booked that morning that I really needed to. So different abilities happen in different places as well. And the problem is when you need the one you don't have, And you have these other ones that aren't really helpful at that point in time. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Yeah. basically, going back to, you know, the actual question, that sort of very definite radical honesty about where I'm at What what I'm capable of, what needs to happen, and what that means, and what it means about when I need to ask for help, or when I need to flag to somebody. So yeah, I told you I was going to be able to get this done, and it's not going to happen. And you know, all of the rest of those things, even if it's really, really embarrassing, is a huge part of what I've had to figure out how to do in order to keep things from falling apart. And it's been very difficult, but it's also been incredibly valuable.
0: And and I guess you have done the adjustment, unlike several of us, uh, much earlier at least, that you know when to ask for help.
2: I have made myself learn. I'm still not always good at it. It's one of my least favorite things to do. But it is a thing that it's like, okay, this is not going to... The knock-on effects of me not asking for help right now are actually worse than the embarrassment and awkwardness of asking for help, which is basically the frame that eventually allowed me to do some of it was being able to stop and go, okay, but if I drop this, which I am very likely to do right now if I don't seek some kind of support or deferment or whatever is appropriate. If I drop drop this, then I'm gonna have to deal with all of this stuff. Whereas if I seek support, I am going to be embarrassed because I am it's, it's still, that's still how I feel, but I will not have to deal with this whole big thing that is also associated with. And yeah, it's not easy still, but it is something that I'm getting better at and it's not fun. And I often resent that I have to, but it still works better to get the support earlier than to eventually have to get the support anyway, but to do it when you're sitting in the middle of the mess that happened when you didn't ask in the first place. You know?
0: I know completely. I know exactly how that works. Yeah, it's easier to, it's easier to ask for help early than to ask for the fire department later.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and I had to get to points where I was asking for the fire department later. Um, a couple of times first and I've been very lucky in that the times that I did in fact drop everything I had and is genuinely through luck the support networks and the opportunities that that didn't cost me way more than it could have um, which is a genuine benefit and luck that I've had in my life but it's also you know I had I had to do it a few times before it was a, I was able to go, okay, Brain, what do we want least? We're still going to wind up being in this place where everybody knows we couldn't hack it. Avoiding that at this point is not an option. So do we want to do that after everything else has collapsed or now before everything else has collapsed?
0: Yeah. It's
2: not not necessarily the nicest way to phrase it, but it was the way that I could actually internalize um, in the way that the nicer things of, it's okay to ask for support. It's okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's judging you, all of those things. Those things never sank in for me. I found them very hard (laughs) to believe. Yeah, I can see that. make myself believe, okay, so we're going to wind up everybody knowing that we couldn't do the thing regardless this is no longer an optional part of this um sequence of events so now the choice is when do they find out before or after you know everything has collapsed and so it's like okay well i guess they're finding out before because then at least everything hasn't collapsed and that was the thing that i could internalize and then go okay so given that also self you know you wouldn't judge someone else needing help here so in addition to that other part stop being such a dick to yourself but that was sort of the thing that had to come after
0: (laughs) yeah that that sort of rolls into not just uh radical honesty but radical self-awareness
2: yeah and it's very difficult and it's very uncomfortable and i don't succeed at it all the time but it's a goal kind of thing it's a i have found that i would rather try and face the discomfort of all of the rest of it then be forced to face the discomfort with the disaster area afterwards so yeah i think that's pretty much that
0: (laughs) i i yeah that that covers all the bases um so when you sit down with that to-do list or your first to-do list of the day how do you decide what to do first
2: Um, I do the sort of triage thing again. I tend to, um, have the, what's the big thing that has to get done and when does it have to get done by, um, or what things are not movable in the day. So coming up in the next week, I'm doing a presentation on the basics of copyright for the instructors in the trades section of our college. And that is going to happen at, you know, X time. And it's this long and I have to have my PowerPoint and everything set up and practiced for it. So that's the big block that everything else has to go around. And then the other side of it is I'm also a library assistant as well as a copyright assistant. So I'm also doing the library work that's going to come up as it happens. Um, so then that becomes the, okay, but when is there another library staff member in? So that's when I need to sit down and do stuff at the computer. When am I the only person there? That's when I need to do stuff that's more flexible, that doesn't require sitting down and paying complete attention. And it becomes that sort of moving blocks. I'm a very kinesthetic person. Video is on, on your end. I just haven't turned it off, yeah, but yeah. my hands, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Occasionally when I'm talking, my Fitbit will in fact decide that I've just done 10 minutes of aerobics. Um, (laughs) So for me, it's very much moving around the blocks of time that I have to make it fit into the hours available in a day. Um, So that's what I'll basically start at. And once that sort of order of what is absolutely necessary comes, I will actually then go for what seems easiest. And like a lot of people don't do it that way. And I think this is one of those ways where it's very variable, what works for you best. But especially when I'm just starting, it can actually be much better for me to go, okay, I have all of these five things to do that are, you know, this is the time to do them. I can do them now. And they're roughly of equal, you know, severity of importance. I'm going to do this one because it's more fun. And it just is enough to get me started in the process of actually getting things done because I'm less reluctant to do it or I'm actually happy to do it depending on which it is. So, you know, all other things being equal, I'll do the one that's most rewarding.
0: <laughs> that's, that's fair. And I'm listening to how you, how you do that. And it occurs to me, I got a thing mm-hmm. um, from uh, the company and I got it on like an Indiegogo and I haven't okay. reviewed it yet, or at least I haven't reviewed it as the time of this recording.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, it's from a company called Brave Storming, and it's called oh. the, the Mover Book. And what it is, you can't see it, is it's basically yes. little blocks, magnetic blocks, with post-it notes, especially oh. post-it notes on them. And so you can write down the things and then visually reorder them based on the size, oh. like the the default, like the, the smallest of them in the default thing uh, comes up like just about an hour wide on their little schedule.
1: So oh, you wow. can,
0: yeah. What? And uh, it's called the, uh, the bravestorming is Bravestorming.com is, is the company and it's called the mover book. And one of the things I like about it is because it's magnetic, they've got like a, it's, it looks to be about, I want to say uh, maybe not a five, slightly larger than an a five. Maybe it's a, a B size something. Um, okay. but. They've got one for they've got one that's a full book that you can do like a full week on, and then they've got little ones that you have you can you get little magnet adapters for <laughs> them that you can attach to the sides of your monitor
2: oh, that looks I am going to look at this right, yeah I have always said that like i you know the iron man o s and the Marvel movies yes. that he can move around all around himself, yeah yeah, yeah. I have desperately wanted that for years and admittedly this is not quite that, but it does look, that actually looks really useful.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool in that since I was a, a backer, I have pretty much an entire set, like two sets mm-hmm. of the post-it note thingies, the small attached to your monitor thing, a planner board that's just basically a yeah, sheet of metal board. Yeah. So I, I have one of everything and two sets of the little mover pads. Ooh. And
2: because yeah, that, that looks really neat.
0: And I tried it for about a week when I was, um, or no, it was about a month. I <laughs> want to say um, when I was doing uh, before I, I transitioned to back to infrastructure from where I was doing <laughs> basically back end support. And it was really useful to be able to just go, okay, here are my meetings. Click, click, click here's, you know, and it's right there and it's visual. And yeah. if I need to move something or when something's done, I can just take it off. And it it was pretty cool.
2: Yeah, no, that looks really cool. I will have to look at that. And I mean, that's another thing that I, that I, I tend to think is useful is to think about how you think about information, um, and how it appears to you and try and tailor what you're approaching to that kind of thing. Um, I am obviously very kinesthetic. I move things around in space a lot, so that does look really interesting and I'll have to look at it. I usually don't have quite enough space to do all of the kinesthetic stuff I'd like to do because you can't really surround yourself with whiteboards in most offices, especially uh, when... Not I wish. Especially when you don't, like, actually own the office. The office is technically the head librarian. She's just only there on Thursdays, at which point I get kicked out to go sit in the... Um, in the library somewhere those are my orphan days and otherwise because she's normally in fort st john which is a nearby other city that the college is the college is spread over four five no six sorry remote relatively remote communities in this area um so we're northern bc it's up about the same latitude as what moscow would be in europe and our population density is basically 1.5 person per square kilometer.
0: <laughs> oh, so a little space to move around, yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's that's counting the whole region, which includes the towns. Like, once you get out of the towns, it's more like half a person per square kilometer. Um, so there's Fort St. John is the biggest center up here in the northeast, um, and that's actually where I grew up. And that's where the largest campus of our college is. And then I am in Dawson Creek, which is technically the main campus because the college started back in the 70s when this was a bigger town than Fort St. John. So that's kind of a funny thing that keeps happening. But I'm at this um, library here. And then the other three satellite colleges don't have their own libraries anymore. They get stuff sent in from one of the two major ones but I get the office for four days out of five. And so I can't really take it over that much and I can't stick whiteboards everywhere. And I wish, but
0: there's, yeah. And, and this is almost like a portable whiteboard or you can use yeah, a portable scrum board if you want. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So anyway, that's really neat. Thank you for mentioning that. I will have to look at that more later.
0: Yeah, it was just something that came up on my radar, and I got one, and I haven't really had a chance to uh, talk about it on the show yet, and I'm like, you would really dig this.
2: Yeah, that looks really neat. And my sister might actually be able to use it, too. My sister um, is still living in Vancouver, where I was living with her for a while, and she's managing a whole bunch of different things, and she also finds sort of spatial stuff easier than just lists on boards. So, thank you.
0: Oh, you're, you're very welcome. So with all of that, uh, what's the best advice you've been given or given someone?
2: Probably the best advice. um, Hmm. Probably one of the best advice that I ever had was actually coming across the, the, if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. um, Particular one in terms of, doing things that work for you rather than things that have worked for other people necessarily. And the other one is, um, that I like that is, um, it's the test everything and hold on to what is good, which is just, I think quite good practical advice is that you try things and you don't necessarily dismiss things out of hand, but you only keep what's actually working. And what's working now rather than what should be working if you were a different person or in a different space or a different time or were the ideal version of you rather than the version of you that actually exists in the world as it is right now or you know all of those things like what is actually going to work for what is as opposed to any other version of what might be um and i think the other one is know what you actually want, know what you're actually trying to get out of any given situation. And this was something that uh, a mentor of mine told me what is, is that he said that most of where people get messed up is that they go into a situation without really knowing and being, this is another one of those radical self-honesty things, being very honest about what it is you want out of this situation. You know, what is it you want out of this interaction? What is it you want out of this job, out of any of the rest of these things? And sometimes you're not going to be able to get what you want out of it. Um, And you can only figure out whether you're going to be able to get out what you want out of it if you know what you want. So, and that one's been important to me just because it's really easy not to be honest with yourself, or be aware of what it is you actually want, or you're actually looking for out of any given moment. You know, you think I want, you know, I want to go to this, I want to win this competition even. And what actually you want is to have yourself validated. And then you have to ask, is winning this competition actually going to validate me? And it might not. And if it's not going to, then you're going to do all of these things and then not get what you're looking for at the end of it, you know? And that's sort of the level of, of looking at it and knowing exactly what you are actually looking for, what you actually want or need out of something that makes a difference to a lot of the decisions that you make. And I think that's probably one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gone. And I think at applies directly to things like, you know, trying to organize your life, trying to be productive, trying to figure out how to keep everything under control, which is that if what you really want is to become this other person that you admire or that you've constructed in your head that does things this way, you need to look at that desire and go, well, is this actually even possible? And why do I want this? Is that actually what I want to be? And how, even if it is, how do you get there? You know, maybe you do want to be that person, pardon me, who is that level of organized and the rest of it. Okay, you want to be that person. How do you get from here to there? Right. Because just immediately acting like you are that person is not necessarily going to get you there. And also, why do you want to be that person? You know, what do you think you're going to get out of being that person? Um, turns out that actually, you know, being that hyper-organized person or that hyper-productive person is not necessarily the key to being a happy and healthy person, even if it's possible for you. And if you realize that what you actually want is not to feel miserable, then maybe this is not the best way to go about that. You know, it's that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, there there are a couple of, of things I had read online where it was like, I can see how this works really well for you, but it would make me neurotic. Also, I can see where your neuroses are, reading <laughs> okay. through your methodology.
2: Right. And I mean, sometimes that works great. And then sometimes it also doesn't work at all. And one of the very common things that people who have comorbid depression and anxiety do is that we balance our horrible coping mechanisms. So the depression keeps you from being so anxious because you just don't have the energy um, that you're a disaster area, but the anxiety keeps the depression from um, making you completely about everything. So you manage to like prop them against each other for months and months and months and months, and then eventually you get exhausted and worn out and you crash and it stops working. Or you treat one of them, and it starts getting better, and then your whole system of propping the horrible effects of both of them against each other to function falls apart because you're actually getting better on one side or the other, and that lets the full dysfunction of the other one come through, and that's never a good
0: thing. I I think it depends. It's um, we. Well, it's never
2: an enjoyable thing.
0: Well, I mean, we we,
2: have. The consequences of it.
0: Yeah, we, we treated Ursula's depression and then it turns out, and then the anxiety pops up and it's yep. like, oh, you you have anxiety and then we're finding that if the, the two are so interlinked that maybe treating the anxiety would take care of the depression.
2: Yep. And a lot of that, you know, has that sets of interaction. Um, my two biggest symptoms with my depression are a huge, incredible lethargy. Like I just want to sleep all the time. And then a um, catastrophically depressed mood, but also the specific one that gets really bad is the anhedonia, which is that nothing makes me happy, which is actually a much bigger problem than you'd think it is because it actually gets down to nothing. There was a period where I um, was having difficulty with food because the idea of eating was just like, nothing was interesting to eat. And that just meant that, I would not eat for a whole day. And then I get to the point where the discomfort of being hungry was finally enough that I would have to find something to eat, which always results in eating the wrong things in the wrong amount at the wrong time. Um, And there was just a point where it was like, none of the behavioral things that I could do about this were going to help because all of them are predicated on the idea that you can somehow make yourself care about the fact that you haven't eaten properly today, and we'd actually fixed most of all of the rest of it. But it turned out that that anhedonia and the lethargy were very mixed together. And as a result, I'm actually on a fairly low dose of what's normally an ADHD med, which makes me capable of figuring out what food is okay to eat. Which turned out to have a cycle effect of, oh wait, now I can get up and make food, and now suddenly I can get the behavioral um, advantages of eating good food, and it just keeps going up the rest of it. So they're often very, very interlinked.
0: And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that sometimes that interlink is uh, almost that dependency tree that by starting to solve one, it has this, It's you know, that's the cornerstone that lets you build the rest up.
2: And on the other hand, you may have cobbled together this coping mechanism. And as a result, you know, part of it's going to fall over. You're going to discover that now that you've treated some of the anxiety, you don't have that driving terror that was helping you overcome the lethargy of a depression. But that doesn't mean that treating the anxiety is bad. It just means that now we need to treat this other or manage whatever that ends up looking like for you this other part of it it's not that that was bad it's just that now everything's still interconnected with each other and you'd managed to. this wasn't a great coping mechanism before it was probably making you miserable and it would have eventually fallen over anyway but now we have to figure out how to prop up what you were using it for
0: right okay um Anything else on that before we go to, uh, to the, sad, the saddest question in the list?
2: <laughs> no, I think that's probably it.
0: All right, then um, yeah. what do you do when you fail or you miss a goal? How do you deal with that?
2: So I think for me, there's two very separate parts of this in that there's the what happens to me emotionally and what actions do I attempt to take? And what happens to me emotionally is that I will probably react in an, like the feelings that I will have are probably going to be terrible. And um, there's probably, depending on how big the fail is and how big it isn't, I may not be able to do anything about those feelings. Um, It's something that comes up in dialectical behavioral therapy sometimes as radical acceptance, which is, you're just going to feel shitty right now. So... Now we have to deal with the that this is a feeling that's happening. And for me, with failure, I'm still often very much in that space where I'm going to screw up. And what's going to happen is I'm going to have the whole body flush of horror and terror, and I may need to go cry. And I'm going to now have all of the terrible thoughts that happen. And this is just a process that happens when I screw up. But it's also not forever. And it's not. You know, this doesn't mean that any of these feelings are real or true. Um, And so I often, that's what will happen to me emotionally. And then we have the other side, which is what do I do about this fact? And what I do about it is usually go, okay, how is this, you know, what emotional response am I having? Okay, we're having a meltdown. Okay, we need to go take 10 minutes in the bathroom. And, you know, do calming breaths and calm down and deal with it. And then we come back and go, okay, how do we fix what just happened here? You know, what do we do about whatever has happened that's a failure? Um, What needs to be fixed? Who do I need to contact? Do I need to contact anyone? Do I need to act in certain ways? Do I need to apologize to people? Do I need to do repair work? So there's all of the things of, okay, now this is a problem, so how do I fix the problem? But part of how I, fix the, I have to fix the problem is I have to make space for the fact that I'm going to have probably a disproportionate and really unfortunate feelings meltdown first. And it will pass. And there are things I can do to make it pass faster or to make it work better. There are things I can do that will let me put it off maybe until after I've done the first bit of putting out the fire, depending on how bad the failure was. But that feelings thing is going to happen because that's what I've got right now. Um, Now, it has gotten better. Um, I'm much less incapable of facing failure without a complete meltdown than I used to be. Um, Ooh. <laughs> but no, it's great, and it's one of those things where it's like, hey, I screwed up today, and I didn't have to go cry. But it's also, you know, it's sort of like I almost have to treat it like an, an allergic reaction. It's like, oh no, I have come in contact with failure, and now I'm going to have this allergic reaction, and I need to do something about the allergic reaction. But the reaction itself is not necessarily a truth, like. The fact that I forgot this thing at work does not actually mean that the fact that I now think that I am a failure who will never accomplish anything in my life and should just go hide under a bed somewhere and die is true, but also this feeling is now going to happen for the next 20 minutes and, you know, or the next... Sometimes it hangs over for several days and what we do is we go, yes, that is a feeling that is happening to us and this is how we answer those feelings and, you know, these are all the techniques and all of the tools that we have spent 15 years building up and which I, I, I'm told any time that I'm talking about this, I end up sounding like the most reluctant six-year-old going to school ever.
0: But that's basically <laughs> <a good. laughs> it, okay, yeah, that's fair. <laughs>
2: All of these things make me feel like I'm a six-year-old, you know, like, yes, okay, I know. <laughs> you know, like when you're that that six-year-old that's a little bit smarter than the teacher expects you to be, and they keep telling you things you already know, except that my intellectual brain knows them, but my limbic system does not know them. My limbic system is a distressed toddler at the moment and needs to be treated like a distressed toddler. So let's go with that.
0: Yeah. the, the so that's, the, uh,
2: that's where the, failure goes with me is we have this this side that may it might be fine. I might go, oh shit, well that happened because you know we've had a lot of work on this and I might be able to just go on, or I might have the full like you can feel the heat flushing in your skin and all of the other things. It might be a full horrible, you know, triggered reaction. But other whichever side it is, it's like, okay. That's the feeling side. Now in the practical side, what do we do about this situation with the remembering that the feeling side is part of the situation?
0: I'm just going to go into a room. I'm going to have my meltdown. I'll be back in about five minutes, people, and then we will fix this. That sort of thing.
2: <laughs> Basically. And like, you know, I have tea at work or I have lots of tea at home. I have, like my cat. Who's over here, who I occasionally keep reaching back to Pat. I'm amazed that she's not demanding my attention because I'm spending a bunch of time talking to the um, iPad. And normally, when that happens, she needs to be right in the middle of things. So she's actually being really well behaved right now. She's a 15 year old Tordy.
0: Oh, well, that explains so much right there. And then, uh, Sergey is sleeping somewhere. He's already had his grand adventure, but uh, it's almost time for him to come into my office and start uh, demanding love by destroying the shelves behind me so
2: well he has nobody to throw knives at at the moment
0: he <laughs> only ever threw knives at Shepard I don't know why. I mean he's throwing knives but not at somebody yeah. <laughs> anyway <laughs> anyway
2: but yeah so that's that's basically where things are with failure I really try to make it so that I don't have to go there I you know it's That's part of the whole, even the mediation of, well, what's going to be a bigger failure if I ask for help now, or if I have to have help when it's all fallen over, you know, like, which, because I really hate the feeling of when I have screwed up, but, so I spend a lot of effort trying not to get there, but also, you know, it came to a point where, I did have to just go into that specifically it's stuff that's dealt with in dialectical stuff where it is, okay, this is the emotional state that is happening to us. What do we do about it rather than how do I change the emotional state? Because this may not actually be possible at this moment. And for me, screwing up often comes with an emotional state of would somebody just strike me dead on the spot, please.
0: (laughs) I know I've, I've 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 been there on more than one occasion so yeah I know
2: so yeah yeah that's pretty much it and I mean on the practical side what I tend to try and do is just okay what is the actual failure involved what is what is the actual problem and what is the problem that needs to be solved you know and there's sometimes there's three or four problems because there's the problem of whatever you actually messed up plus there's the problem of The interpersonal relationships involved. And sometimes you can also look at it and go, actually, this is a very small problem. And, you know, nothing really needs to be done about it, except to go tell someone that you're sorry, and, you know, take steps to have it not happen again. And sometimes it's a huge, big, complicated problem, even when it's not a big and emotional one, it's still a huge, big crap, we have like seven moving parts that need to be solved now. But it's mostly just how do we fix the thing that has just happened?
0: Right, 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 right.
2: And then also, how can we never do this again?
0: <laughs> I'm a big fan of the never do this again myself, yeah. So, uh, what about the other side of of that? Um, do you celebrate your successes? And if so, how?
2: Um, I am actually really bad at this. Although for me, in a lot of ways, something being done successfully is its own reward and celebration because it means that it's no longer hanging over me with the potential to fail, (laughs) which probably tells it a lot about how much I fear failure, but it actually does come down to, I have completed this thing and it is done. And that means I can't fail at it from here on in. So I now get to take this huge big cloud off and just enjoy the fact that that cloud is not there anymore. So in some ways that is in and of itself a huge reward and to some extent a celebration for me, but I'm actually terrible at consciously doing it. I'm trying to be a bit better, even when it's a conscious moment of, okay, we have finished a thing and now we are going to take five minutes to go, yes, this is done. I did it. It is good. And I can, you know, have a cup of tea or play with the cat or spend five minutes on Tumblr looking up fan art or something like that instead without feeling like I should be working on something else. Um, And I do celebrate more than I reward. I'm not very good at self rewarding because I am one of those people who's like, well, if I can have this thing after I do this other thing, I could just have it now because nobody is here to stop me. So I'm really bad on the reward-oriented part, but I am trying to more often explicitly acknowledge I did a thing and it was good, and doing something to mark that, even if it's just, you know, texting my mom to say, look at my house, it's clean. (laughs) Say yay for me and send me a happy owl sticker.
0: I, you know, some days that's that's all we can ask for. Is a happy yeah. owl sticker. I should send myself more stickers. I mean the badges. I I could be making badges yes. to give myself all the time, but for um sure. doesn't just doesn't feel the same as when somebody else gives you that sticker.
2: Yeah, and I mean there are people like my mom and some of my friends who literally I will text them to say, "I just did this. Tell me that it's awesome." Like literally I am outsourcing myself celebration to you right now. <laughs> And they do it to me, not to me, (laughs) like I'll get a text that says, I just did this, and I may not understand what that was, although I will probably (laughs) ask afterwards, because I'm eternally curious about everything, but clearly you think this is good, so yay, I'm really proud of you, whatever it was. (laughs) So I'm trying to do more of that.
0: Oh no, I'll I'll be like, oh wow, look at this great thing I've got done. And Ursula will be like, is that good? And I'm like, yes. And she'll be like, I have no idea what that is, but go you. And I'm like, you. Yeah. It's it's yeah, the no. joy of being a technical person, yeah.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. And like and like I one of the things that I've just done is I'm that I'm um really looking forward to is that because I did actually get this job and come up here I came up here to start it in July so it's still relatively new I'm at that weird stage where it's not new anymore but you still haven't been there very long so it's like that sort of balance but because I'm up here and I have got the job and I'm doing all this stuff is I'm going to a big um, it's called the neurosequential symposium in Banff in June and it's actually a huge big thing with um dr bruce perry who does a lot of um medical and neurological trauma work with kids he has a um it's not a it's not a like a system it's a model of looking at things how to work in a way that actually respects developmental stages and neurology and physiological needs in um obviously it was originally designed for kids with significant trauma, but it also works really well and is really supportive and resilience building in anybody. Um, And it's a two-day symposium in Banff and me and my friend who is actually a psychologist is we're going to go together and that's actually great. So that's probably the biggest sort of celebration thing that I've done recently. (sighs) And actually we bought our tickets and did our registration today. So
0: That's that's pretty cool. That is very cool. It
2: is. It's fun. It has one of my favorite stories attached to it, which is she went to one in I think it was 2016, and um, I do a lot of a lot of um, independent research and a lot of work with trauma and neurology and mental illness and all of these things. Initially, partially just because I needed to figure out how my brain was working and how the depression was working and how the PTSD was interacting with the depression and how all of these things, and then also because it turned out to be great fuel for writing. And then I was also a nanny for many years before I went back to get my library science degree. And it actually, you know, all of the stuff that's important for kids with trauma is actually just equally as important for kids without it. It's just that you can sort of get away with it with, you know, neurologically typical kids. Whereas if you don't take the appropriate steps with kids who have more difficulties, it explodes much faster. And so she, um, does clinical therapy for gifted kids and kids with trauma and adults with trauma and all the rest of it. And so she went this time and, um, we spend a lot of time talking about this stuff together. And she was talking about some of the things that we were having and saying, you know, my conversation with my friend, this, that, or the other. And they were like, so, you know, is your, is your friend, is she a teacher? Is she I I wasn't even in library school at this point. Is she a teacher? Is she a therapist? And she's like, no, no, her interest in, Trauma is recreational? <laughs> and then she texted me, and I could not stop laughing all day. <laughs> because it's like, how do, how do you say, you know, it's she's an amateur, but it, it, it's recreational? I don't get paid for it, I just study it a lot.
0: <laughs> That's fair. That, you know, everybody has their hobbies, everybody yeah. has their little corner of geekery.
2: And now at least I can say I'm a librarian and library, particularly public librarianship, but even academic librarianship intersects with the public and with people, you know, dealing with these things in many, many ways. I was actually able to put a bunch of it to use working with a student who's on, she actually has recognized disability because of her PTSD um, and helping her through getting something finished because I was able to recognize, Oh wait, this is a, this is what's going on and change my approach and how I was working with her in a way that was really useful. So it's actually quite useful in my field, but at the time I didn't even have the field.
0: That's uh, how some of the best things come about. I I fell into computers. I was going to be a English teacher. So uh, computers were my hobby and that was, well, let's not do the math on that right now. (laughs) Um, so that's all the questions. Um, mm. do you have anything else you want to talk about or promote? I, you said something about a podcast about the Silmarillion. Yes.
2: Yeah, so I do a podcast called feather summarizes the Silmarillion because feather is the name that I sort of accidentally wound up using online most. Um, because it's the one that got associated with the extremely, It's the one that's associated with the million words of Steve Bucky fanfic that I started writing after um, The Winter Soldier came out. (laughs) It was going to be a small small fic that I was going to write. It was 10,000 words. It had an outline, and by the time I was done that particular one, it was 120,000 words, and then I just kept going. Anyway... I also started the podcast that I do, which is called Feather Summarizes the Silmarillion, which I started because the Silmarillion is not a novel. It's a history book. It's actually written very much like the actual chronicles that Tolkien would have been studying in his you know, real life work, which were things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and all the rest of it. And the result is that if you're reading everything else as a novel, you go and you try and read the Silmarillion and suddenly... It's, there's no novel structure, there's no um, um, protagonist structure, there's no none of the rest of it. It's a history chronicle. So I basically am teaching a podcast history course, but it's the Silmarillion rather than anything our real world. Um, it's on Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com slash foundfeather. I have to actually record... An episode after I'm done here, it's we're about to the point where Morgoth's been stuck in Angband for 200 years and everything's about to go to hell. Odd,
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, it's yeah, a lot of
2: fun. I like it. I started it just because it's a way that I, um, the very first iteration of it was on Dreamwit like five years ago because. The Hobbit movies had come out and people were, a bunch of people I knew were wanting the information in the Silmarillion to do their own fandom things, but found it very hard going. So that's where it sort of started. And then I just realized it would be a really neat thing to go into doing in an audio format. And I needed a project when I moved back up north that I would keep doing. And it also didn't require, it wasn't quite writing because I wasn't sure how much stress was going to get in the way of the actual creative part of it, the actual composing sentences in terms of narrative, which can be very difficult for me when I'm, you know, under a lot of stress. Whereas this one is much more, it's basically taking an academic approach, just with a lot more swearing and a lot more colloquialisms, which I can do very easily under stress. That's what I did through all my academic degrees. But it was still a creative outcome, and it was still something that would result with me interacting with people in a creative way. So it was my, this is going to be the project that I do. And it's been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot about audio editing and stuff while I'm doing it. But that's sort of the big project that anybody might be interested in. If you've ever wanted to have somebody explain to you the Silmarillion with a lot of asides and tangential comments and frequent swearing and asking what somebody thought they were doing and also explanations of why it's written like this and what is going on with that, then that might be of interest.
0: So that, uh, I I mean, that is of interest. Um, And that actually leads me to, to sort of another question. Are you a member of the Mythopoeic society?
2: I am not because I am the least joiny person in the world um but it's I my legal middle name is Arwen um (laughs) and I was born in 1985 so that's way before it was cool (laughs) and dad started reading I used to listen to my dad read to me for ages when I was little and he started reading me The Hobbit when I was three and by the time I was six he was tired of rereading The Hobbit So he moved on to The Lord of the Rings because he thought it would at least take longer to actually reread the whole thing. (laughs) So the way many people grew up with fairy tales or even the Bible, I grew up with Arda and with Lord of the Rings. And I think I read The Silmarillion the first time myself through sheer stubbornness when I was um, 11. And yeah, so...
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, similar similar thing. Except uh, uh, back it up about uh, seven to eight years. Mom was reading The Hobbit aloud to us, and then we went into the Lord of the Rings. And then one day, I was not happy with the pace we were going with, so I picked up. <laughs> I, we were in the Two Towers at that point, and so I just picked it up and I started reading it. And reading? Uh, yeah. yep, until I caught up. I I will admit to never getting through all of the Silmarillion because yes, it is very very dry. It is.
2: And it's very different. It's not a novel. And like I actually had, I did it because I was stubborn, but my undergrad is in history and specifically in medieval history. And it was a revelation going through reading the primary sources for my undergrad. And then I went back to read *The Silmarillion and went, oh my God, I know how to read this book now. Because (laughs) it's actually, it's actually a technique difference. It's, you read it, very differently than you would read a modern novel even you know in as much as lord of the rings is a modern novel it's reading it as a as a chronicle as a medieval chronicle is a completely different approach to how you read it to what you expect to what you take out of the information that's there and if you don't have any experience in reading that before of course this is the most boring dry repetitive what is going on? No, I, it's one of the things, one of the reasons that I do the podcast is I think there's wonderful stuff in there, but I think that knowing how to get it out of it is not something that you get when you're approaching it, when you're not, when you haven't, you know, had training in how to read medieval texts. And that's not anything anybody should be expected to do when they're just trying to read a fantasy book.
0: Yeah, no, no, completely fair. And and I think that, from a, a structural literary standpoint, I think that's what has made the Lord of the Rings such an enduring piece of literature uh, is that, and and why there are very few things that compare to it, is that um, Tolkien went through and he did that level of history before he, st- I don't know if it was before or as part of the development of the novel and the story.
2: Yeah, it was, to some extent, both. He'd been developing the world forever, but then he also discovered new things as he was writing it. But it was, it's very much, it's as if he was trying to write a novel about medieval England, except it's this invented world instead. And he took the same level of research that he would demand of a historical novel of, you know, King Alfred, and then just applied it to his own world. But when he you know, the notes that were put together to make the Silmarillion was the stuff that he was doing for that. It was the stuff that he was writing so that he knew the Chronicle of Alfred except in his um, developed world. And it's a very different reading technique. So it's very different. different. So it it was actually a huge revelation to go back after I'd done the primary source work for my degree to go back and read the Silmarillion and go, oh wait, I get it now. And there's enough stuff that's in there that's really neat that I'd like to offer and, you know, really moving and also really devastatingly tragic because that entire book is Rock's Fall, Everybody Dies from the Beginning to the End. Pretty but, much. But um, I'd like to share it with other people and in that form, but it's also like nobody should ever feel Nobody should ever feel bad or inadequate or anything for needing a mediator to go through that book because it's actually not a novel. He's not giving you a novel. This isn't a, a fantasy novel. This is a chronicle text that happens to be published as a fantasy novel all the time.
0: Yeah, and um, I. Th- so yeah, that's that project. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that is that is an amazing project. So yeah, very cool. Um, uh, and before we wrap up, where would we find you? I have your Patreon now, but where would we find you on, on the socials if you do the socials?
2: Um, I'm Drakina Brarian on Twitter, although I'm on Twitter timeout for a little while. And I'm Finding Feather on Tumblr. And I am Recessional on Dreamwidth.
0: Cool. He says making rapid notes,
2: <laughs> it's all good.
0: knowing, knowing full well that I'm going to go back and listen to this again, but I, for some reason I want to write it down. So it, it stays in my head. At least a blank that says, fill this in later so that I remember to do it as part of listening because the notes are what I work off of when I'm filling yeah, up the, the, the blog post. Yeah.
2: For sure. Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. I most of the time am on Dreamwidth just because I, I, I my heyday, quote unquote, was tum, was not Tumblr was Livejournal and Dreamwidth is you know basically the better version of Livejournal, but it's also you know an obscure corner of the internet these days. So.
0: That's yeah, very true. Very fair. I, uh, mine is, mine is probably gathering dust right now. So. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thank you so much.
2: Well, and thank you for having me and yeah, hopefully other people will find it useful. Have a great day.
0: I I have, I certainly have. And, uh, and I hope other people do too. And, and for those other people who are, are, listening right now. We'll be right back after this. My dryer just finished, so that humming noise you heard in the first part, that was my dryer, if if you heard it, and now it's done. Ursula's gone to bed. We have finished talking to Meredith, and it is time to talk about your badge code right after I say thank you, Meredith, for appearing. It was a joy talking to you, and I can't wait to get listening to all the back episodes of your podcast when I have time around my rigorous podcasting schedule myself. it's it, it, Okay, so I have a problem. Anyway, this week's badge code is dewormer in honor of Ursula's, well, deworming, and you can take it to productivityalchemy.com. That was the click of my pen so that I might write down the the badge code and not get it wrong again and type it properly and all that sort of thing. Anyway, you can go to productivityalchemy.com, look at the badge how-to, and see how you too can earn these fancy badges if you aren't already. If you are already, did you know you get a badge for supporting me on Kofi? That's right. Uh, if you buy me a coffee on ko slash K Sunny, it will show you the badge code for the I Bought Kevin a Coffee badge. I know, like really just so amazingly unique on that one. Also, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can do that too. Uh, patreon.com slash Ursula V pays for this podcast, uh, all the other podcasts, the one other podcast we do right now. Uh, and the food for Kevin and Ursula Eat Cheap and the medicines we have to be on now to keep us from dying, having done Kevin and Ursula Eat Cheap for 10 years. It's... Uh, It's a labor of love. I'm not sure what kind of love. Maybe a tough love. Anyway, um, another way you can support us is by sharing Productivity Alchemy with your friends, your relatives, strangers on the street. uh, Like us, link us, blah, 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 blah. And we do our best to make sure that that's how we keep the podcast going. Isn't that awesome? So... There we go. That's it for this week. I'm going to go continue the recovery from MAGFest. It's been a, it has was a long weekend. It was a lot of fun, and I'm still tired. It's, I've been home for two days. I'm still tired. So there you go. We will talk to you next week when hopefully we will actually have the letters show. And until then, well, stay productive.